Hi, I am Jen Matthews, and I'm an adoptee. You're listening to Conversations About Adoption, a podcast where I interview and converse with other adoptees and first parents about their stories and other issues around adoption. My goal is to spread the perspectives of other adoptees and first parents so we can challenge the common narratives and misconceptions of adoption and hopefully shed light on the social justice issues pertaining to adoption, as well as the issues adoptees and first parents face on a regular basis. Okay, so uh, this is Conversations About Adoption, of course, and today I'm going to be talking to Rich Erlob, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the summit in Kentucky this past April, and um, he is an adoptee who is very involved in advocacy, and you're a musician as well? Uh, yeah. So he has a side project that he's got uh, cooking that he told us about at the summit. And we're going to talk about that as well later. But I'm going to try to make this a two-part episode. Um, the first part, we're going to focus on his story and advocacy and how we can best advocate as adoptees. And then the second part will be about his creative ventures. So, Rich, what can you tell me about your very beginnings? Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. And uh, that, that summit really was a landmark event, wasn't it? It was uh, amazing. First time that the members of all these different communities were brought together, where you had people from the adoption community, the donor-conceived community, the NPE slash MPE community. Yep. And swapping stories and sharing experiences and finding our commonalities uh really really excited and it's going to be in denver uh next year i know i don't know if i'll be able to go but yeah i'll have to see you know it's it's interesting because being you know i guess we're like older adoptees now uh there's a lot of them there in their 20s that are speaking out now and i'm like wow uh but it's interesting because I remember when I was a kid, I don't know when it started, I guess maybe in the 80s, uh, hearing about, you know, quote unquote, test tube babies, you know, IVF and everything and donor conceived and things like that. And I remember thinking, like, these people are going to have a lot of the same issues that we have, because maybe not exactly the same, but they're still going to be. You know, if they're totally donor conceived, there's genetic mirroring issues, there's medical background, there's, you know, wondering where your heritage came from and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. There's there's commonalities that we definitely share with the donor conceived community and the people that DNA surprises. So DNA surprises are a lot like late discovery adoptees in a way, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's uh I Coming up, I can't believe it was a year ago. I have a blog written in my head that it's been a year and I haven't published it yet because it's been percolating. But it was following um, going out to speak to um, some of the leaders in the fertility industry at a conference they had in LA. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I said to them is the same talking point that I share at legislatures where I'll say life's three biggest questions are where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And if you're missing the answer to question number one, that has an impact on questions two and three. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I can talk more about that, but it, uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience. And um, they liked what I had to say until I started raising questions for them. Nobody <laughs> likes that. And then at the end of the conversation, the only people who clapped were the donor conceived people and the therapists. <laughs> <laughs> Figures. <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, yeah. So can, I don't know your personal story. Were you adopted as an infant, like from birth or foster care? Yeah, I was adopted at uh, three weeks old here in Denver found out years later that I was conceived in the Midwest and my mother came to Denver and lived for about six months waiting to deliver me. Um, she was 25 and my birth father was 35 at the time. So it wasn't like the teenage backseat. Right. Fertility. Baby scoop, though, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the, you know, raised in, my parents had already adopted one girl a couple of years before me. And so they had, they said they wanted a boy and they had a good track record. And so as was the case back then, it was like, well, you're nice people. You have a steady job. You have a clean house. Here's your baby. Have a good life. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, yeah. so kind of grew up in, in, you know, the Southwest, almost suburbs of Denver and went to school and we had summer vacations and birthdays and summer camps and pretty uneventful life. Uh, although when I was age five, my older sister was mad at me about something. And so she and my parents always told us we were adopted, but my yeah. sister phrased it in a different way because she uh -oh. said, you know, mom's not your real mom. And, you know, in, in a five-year-old brain, that set, sets you off a little bit. And so that led to a big conversation. And I was moping around for quite a while. And um, and the irony was, of course, that, that mom wasn't my older sister's real mom either. Yeah. She, she was weaponizing that to do something, you know, to try to get at me for some, I'm sure, offense I had done to her. I was five years old when I was told. And again, it's not like I hadn't heard the word adopted. I don't think I understood what it meant yet. And because I was like starting kindergarten and everybody knows adopted because when they got me, they my mom took me around and showed me off to everybody like a new puppy. Uh, Normal maternal instinct, but in retrospect, you know. Yeah. And <laughs> my mom was Mexican. So, like, I definitely was not, you know, and so everybody knew that I didn't come from her and I didn't take it well at all. Um, in fact, it was extremely traumatizing for me. I flipped out screaming. I think I cried myself to sleep that night saying, I want my mommy. Where's my real mommy? Why doesn't she want me? And like my brain just couldn't process it. I, I just flipped out. And it's weird because I've been reflecting a lot on that. And you know how childhood memory can be kind of funny if there's trauma where like you have trouble remembering things. Do you go through that where like a lot of your childhood's a blur? Or oh, There are things people will say to me 
about, oh, remember when this happened? And my response is, was, was I there? <laughs> when, when, when did that happen? I don't remember that. Yeah. And, and part of that's being a guy thing, too. We, you know. It's also I, I think women have better memories, but yeah. Because, like, I had to ask my sister, okay, my parents have a biological daughter that they got pregnant with her, like, real fast. And then there was, a, like, a, a miscarriage and just no pregnancies. For She's nine years older than me. But I had to check in with her because we went to Mexico when I was a child. But in my mind, I was there, like, three times. So, like, when I was around five or six and then when I was like 11, earlier that I can't really remember, like when I was three. And I was like, I had to ask my sister, I'm like, how often did we go? Like, how many times did we go to Mexico? And she's like, well, we went every other year. And I was like, funny, because I don't remember that. And she's like, yeah, we went every other year. Till she got married when I was 14 and moved to California. So we, my parents were like, well, we can't afford both. So it switched from Mexico every other year to California every other year. And like in that early childhood, I, I don't remember being there that many times. And um, it's just weird, you know, because I'm like, why so like all the trips kind of blended into these three lumps you know and and or not even two basically because the one i couldn't really remember and i found that really strange but as i was growing up i can remember being in my teens and like pre-teens and even in my 20s and when i would be telling a childhood story it always happened when i was five years old like everything mm. and at some point i was like wait a minute everything couldn't happen when i was five yeah, and i attributed to that trauma i think i got stuck there like subconsciously or something i i don't know i don't know it's yeah, also yeah. weird the mind that's why i'm interested in psychology <laughs> well there's so much interesting research being done and uh fascinating to see where it's all going to go in terms of therapy and treatment and even circling back around to what role does, I think we've spent a lot of time um, exploring, identifying, naming, sometimes wallowing in trauma. And it's, it's real. I don't mean to minimize it at all. Yeah, but just trying to figure it out, sort it all yeah. out. And, and then there comes a time where you say, so what do I do with this? Yeah. You know, this, this event happened and I'm here. And that was then, and this is now. And yes, it had an impact on me. Yeah. And, and what do I do with that? Right. And, um, that's, I think that's a big challenge for our community. Um, so when I, when I found that out, like you were saying, my, my mom basically said the thing that sort of calmed me down that like, like helped my little brain understand it was she just said, I'm your real mother because I was the same way. I was going, I wish I knew who my real mother was. And of course, I'm sure that broke her heart. But yeah. she finally said, I'm your real mother. She was your first mother. You'll never know who she is. And so we're just going to stop talking about it. Oh, God. So dismissive. I'm sorry, but that bugs me. I, um, I got the, well, it doesn't matter because you're ours now. 
Yeah. And my mom did call, she called her my <clears throat> natural mother. She didn't use birth mother. I don't think that term was used that much back then in the 70s. I don't know. What year were you born? 58. Ah, okay. Way back. I didn't realize you were that much older than me. <laughs> I thought you were closer <laughs> to my age. Yeah. You don't so look I'm, your I'm... age, so that's good. Or I'm just a terrible judge of age. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there, there are days I def definitely look my age, but... <clears throat> um. What do they what do they say? Each generation, like they used to say, 60s the new 40 or 50s the new 35 or whatever. So yeah. Yeah. So did you have any siblings that were adopted after you, or was it just you and your sister? No. Uh they they thought my parents thought they couldn't have kids. And then after adopting two, along came my younger sister as a surprise. Ah. Which I've I've read, I've heard mixed reviews of that i mean it seems like you hear that story a lot yeah but i also heard somebody st say that statistically it doesn't happen all that much and i haven't uh delved into the research on that but i, I just hear i hear a lot of stories along those lines i do too it's almost like people talk about the pressures off you know yeah and like people get so wrapped up in trying like just chill out and like let it happen that's kind of the approach that i took because i have fertility issues i have polycystic ovarian syndrome and mm. when i realized it wasn't happening i was just like okay i'm just gonna not worry about it and if it happens it happens you know because i read what people go through when they are trying to conceive and i'm like i am not putting myself through that yeah like i i just didn't have the energy to put myself through that you know so yeah so years ago, did... I knew someone who is a NICU nurse yeah. and she said that because those women knew what could potentially happen yeah their anxiety level went up and and almost everybody had fertility issues because they they spent so much time worrying about it wow that's and interesting yeah. And so the, the mind body connection is real. You know, we, we know that and we say that, but then we don't always acknowledge it. So, yeah, I listened to the audiobook The Body Keeps the Score earlier this year, and I was just like really taken aback and feel like I need to listen again because it was so good and made a lot of sense. You know, um, it truly did. So, did you end up searching for your family or? Did you do DNA out of curiosity kind of thing or how did, how yeah. did that go down? So um, when I turned 21, my parents gave me my non-identifying information. And I was thankful for that. And I sort of had to imagine who these people were, but it, you know, it gave the, their ages and the ages of siblings and, health history known at the time and physical descriptions um, and, and different, you know, what he did, what she did. She was a secretary at the time and he was a uh, commercial artist and had his own ad agency. And he, he was, have you seen the um, TV series Mad Men? I have heard about it. I never watched it. So Don, Don Draper, who is one of the main characters there, 
um, is an adoptee with a lot of early life trauma. And then he goes into the ad art world. And my birth father was, I think, a lot like him. <laughs> it was it's inter- It was interesting watching the series. Huh. I didn't realize he was an adoptee. That's interesting. It's, yeah, it's worth a binge watch uh, huh. because you see some of the psychology come out and the behaviors and that sort of thing. Interesting. And, and and so and apparently he supported her financially while she was out here. He got her an apartment and um, flew out for my birth. Oh, from the Midwest, and she held on to me for three weeks, hoping that he was going to divorce his wife from whom he was separated and marry her. So you're an affair, uh, baby. I'm an affair baby, yeah. And they they had, I guess, been involved for like seven years. So it was when I finally met, I did search. And when I finally met people who knew them, they just said, you know, you never saw two people anymore in love. Oh. And uh, it, it broke her heart when she had to give you up and to realize that he wanted her but not you. And That's so, so sad. It's, it's very bittersweet. And it's I've I've written a creative nonfiction memoir that's sort of percolating i've had it edited and oh really you know when somebody has to when somebody tells you well this is awesome and you really need to cut about a third of it oh. <laughs> it, that's it, really you know, hard to do they say you got to kill your darlings but I, I can't i can't kill my darlings so i'm i'm sharpening the knife to that's got to be hard man do that that's uh you can always self-publish <laughs> yeah yeah that's true um and and i know we're going to talk about the musical later but now the musical is the front burner project creatively so but as far as the search went colorado actually i always wanted to know but colorado in what year was it about 1979 1980 passed a law um adoptees in colorado had been trying to get unrestricted access to records ever since the early 80s yeah and each time it got whittled back first time um, they created a mutual consent registry second time they created um, the second confidential intermediary program in the u.s after washington state oh really and my adoptive mom sent me an article saying that there was this new law where you could apply and if your birth parent also consented, then they would put you together. Wow. And at the time, that was revolutionary. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that was unheard of. And the bill sponsor who uh, carried it got death threats, which was, yeah, wild. He later became the mayor of Denver. <laughs> um, Wellington Webb. Yeah. Was he adopted too? No, he wasn't. Interesting. Uh, but he was a member of the black community in Denver, and uh, I was not part of any advocacy at that time. But people who dealt with him said that that he just got it. He said, no, you, knowing your roots is important. This is really important. Yeah. And, which seems like it should be a no brainer. So I applied for a confidential intermediary. And there was a judge in town and the, the chief uh, presiding judge of the Denver Juvenile Court. His name is it was, uh, Dana Wakefield had put a hold on processing any of these requests. He had like 500 motions held up in the court because he didn't like the law. 
and with no motion before him, he declared the law unconstitutional, which is a big no-no. Huh. Legally, if, if nobody raises an issue, you don't just get, get to pontificate on what you think about a law. <laughs> and so uh, a bunch of people got up in arms about that. And uh, the people involved with the CI program hired an attorney and it got out in the news that he had actually had a personal interest in this. Because his father was a prominent member of a community somewhere on the East Coast, and he had gotten their babysitter pregnant. Oh. Turns out that child that came out of that is also a legislative advocate on the East Coast. Interesting. And I've, I've met her at conferences. <laughs> and, and so because of, because of that, he had to recuse himself he was censured by the the Colorado Supreme Court uh, for doing that. And that started the CI petitions flowing. Um, however, before I was able to, before my number came up to do a search, um, my parents, and this was about 10 years later, my parents, I went home for Christmas one year and my mom just said, hey, why don't you go down in the safe? and get get those papers for him oh really you didn't and, ask they just offered them uh yeah i mean she this was this was me having going through a divorce having blown up my life and i i think they finally thought maybe this is really an issue that's affecting him in some way <laughs> were you being self-destructive a little bit a little bit yeah um and and not you know I wasn't like suicidal or no but uh, I get it yeah we have I, I tell people I'm I'm a rotating everything addict you know it could be potato chips it could be watching YouTube videos it could you can just go down the list you know TikTok it's what we do yeah yeah it's a and, distraction to disassociate like kind of just do something yeah. and enjoy it a little too much right maybe it's like self comforting in a way. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's I I'm working at uh, a uh, center for people that are in crisis with mental health and substance mm -hmm. use disorder. And I did an internship there and then I came back to work there because the crew that works there, they're fantastic. I love them. And, um, In the short time I've been there, I, it's not like I've asked everybody or it's come up with all the clients, but there's been quite a few that either were foster kids, grew up and aged out of foster care or were adopted or lost their kids because of CPS and their addiction. And it's a bit triggering sometimes, but the ones that were adopted, you know, I, I kind of like want to be like, come here, <laughs> you know, and, Absolutely. and like, say, I understand, you know, and I try to address, you know, that most mental health issues and addiction stem from trauma and people self-medicate in a variety of ways. And 
it's just some of the stories have just been awful you know they've they've been adopted into horrid homes where they were mistreated and like just uh it's so heart-wrenching you know and i wish there was more research that was based on adoptees and their experiences than there is there's not enough of it you know yeah and i and i think that you make a great point because within within our community online we do a lot of surveys um and and i think they're valuable but they're also self-selecting yeah because there are a lot of it's it's not really what you would call a legitimate sample of adoptee experiences because we're the ones who are a functional enough to realize that there's an issue and we need support <laughs> <laughs> be motivated enough to engage and communicate yeah. uh, you know see want to want to do something about it and yeah. these voices that's fair and there there's a whole other population of people out there who don't know what they don't know yeah exactly or, um and i met a number two who said you know i'm i'm fine i'm good i process it it happened it was a moment and i'm in in my brain i'm going that doesn't make sense to me but if that's if that's your experience so far good on you you know that's how it was for me though when i was younger i yeah. i had like a wall up yeah um all the things we can't say and can't feel well i was really really angry at my my birth mother my first mom because i was one of those kids where like my emotions were always like my problematic emotions weren't okay so like crying wasn't it wasn't mm. you know, don't be such a baby you know that kind of stuff so the easiest way for me to deal with those feelings was to just be pissed off at my mother. Like I was so angry, like, and I know now looking back and I mean, it took until I was like 40 to realize, oh, that's why I was mad. <laughs> like I was angry at her to cover up. You know, it's like that one meme that was like, I was angry until you know grief stepped up and told me you know you're not actually angry you're sad or something yeah. i forget how it goes but i think yeah. it was something like that i read it and i was like what doing and it it's like i was i was angry so i had this wall up and because my mom's mexican as soon as i said that i would have to like i, I didn't have to but i felt like i had to explain myself because earlier anytime i would say that people would be like oh how'd that happen and I'd have to and so I had this self-defense mechanism of like answering the questions before they were asked I'm adopted no I don't know who my mother is no I don't want to know who she is she didn't want me so I don't want her and I would right. just spit that out to get it out of the way but then in my 20s I was like I had to recognize that I actually was curious you know and like while I had that front up I was still if anybody looked like me, I'd be like, hey, where's your family from? Like, are you German? Like, I I was trying to pick myself apart by seeing people with similar features and ask them where they were from, you know? So, like, that curiosity was there. I was just trying to cover it up all the time. 
And if you'd asked me when I was in my teens how I felt about adoption, it's great. And when I am older, I'm going to adopt because there's enough kids in this world that need homes and blah, blah, blah. Now I think about that. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) it's just like, it's just we go through these phases, I think. And well, one thing that um, um, I don't know if you know who Ron Nidem is, but he is a therapist who has done a lot of work with adoptees and adoptive families in the Denver area. Um, he taught at uh, Calvin Seminary in Michigan for a while, and he's written a couple of uh, really good books. And he had he came up with some really great catchphrases. And one of those catchphrases was, any news is good news because it's real news in the world of adoption. Because you can you can process the truth. Yeah. But when we're left with a void, that's what adoptee fantasy is about, is you you fill in the void. Oh, and I did that a lot, too, but I couldn't talk about it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really an acceptable thing to talk about. But I used to, like, maybe my mom and dad will come and, like, get me out of here someday and and it's not like my life was horrible there was like my mom wasn't the nicest person and there was one instance of like a severe beating which is not okay that it was one time only it's not like to minimize it but it literally was one time she beat the ever-living shit out of me for almost an entire night like every 15 minutes yeah and then like later on i asked her about it and she didn't remember it at all and then, like several years after that, I was drinking or something, or was it? Yeah, she was that night. Yeah, yeah. Um, but several years later, I brought it up again, and then she acknowledged it that time. And she goes, "Well, she's like, when you were little, I never spanked you because I was afraid they were going to take you away. Some metaphorical they because I was adopted, and so I guess it all just came out at once." I'm like, "Oh, that's great." <laughs> okay you know, yeah like, rationalize it however you want right so, but my life wasn't that terrible but i still had that the fantasy like that my parents were these teenagers and they were in love and they wanted to run away with me but then they got caught and couldn't and like i had all these different scenarios maybe they died in a car accident like just trying to like rationalize like how did i become available for somebody else you know but there was nobody to talk to about it yeah. And, and the problem is that with records sealed up uh, in, in the baby scoop era, there's real, there, there was no story to tell. Yeah. Right. There was none. I had nothing. And then so the, the futility, even, even adoptive parents who wanted to help their children, it was, it's, I've heard this story too, where they said, I wish I had more information to give you. I didn't even but, have non-identifying information. Until I searched, all I knew was, oh, your mother was 16 and your father was 17 and they were from the North Hills of Pittsburgh. That's it. That's all I had. And like my dad wasn't even 17. He was 21. (laughs) So, Mm. but like, it's just, it's terrible when there's that big void and like people that listen to the podcast, I don't know if you know this, but people that listen will know this because I've talked about it before. And the crazy thing is when I was in high school, I ended up, my brother ended up going to high school with me for a couple of years. 
because he got expelled from his school and his grandparents wanted him to graduate. So they paid tuition for him to go to the next closest high school that was a good school. And it was mine. And he, he singled me out and bullied me. And we, we didn't know. Wow. Yeah. He's three years younger than me. Like when we reunited and everything, I was like, had I known you were my brother back then, I'd have kicked your ass, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) but because I had been bullied so much throughout school, I just put my head down and tried to not be noticed, you know, Mm. still like, God damn it. Still found me to bully, you know, like of all the things like that, like I found out in the same phone call that my, my mother was deceased and that I had a brother and that he went to my high school and it was like I think I felt like my brain was gonna implode and like I was so hard like it was really it's like wait I don't know what to be more upset about <laughs> you know? but yeah, there's a point where your eye, eyeballs just start to spin around in your head right where yeah you... so how did how did your search go you know I um when my parents gave me those papers, that was a big moment, and I'm still not completely over it years later, and they've passed on. <laughs> but um, I, I just looked at them, and I said, you, you've had this the whole time? And in Colorado, some of the adoption papers, if you were adopted before uh, 1965, the adoption decree had your birth name on it. Wow. And so it was there, you know, baby boy blank. Wow. And I, I just kept looking at it. And I, I just said, you've had this the whole time. And, you know, my mom was like, well, I guess we forgot. <laughs> I was like, right, you forgot. Um, oh. and, and kudos to them for taking, making the move to give it to me. But yeah, I had to argue to get mine. Um. They had nothing Absolutely. of use in them, but I'd argue. <laughs> yeah. So that opened the door to search because when you have a name combined yeah. with your birth date and the place you were born. Yeah. Um, I, I got help from some searchers. The group here in Colorado at that time was called Adoptees in Search. Now it's Adoption Search Resource. There's a fly here. So if I'm <laughs> waved wildly, <laughs> I'm not trying to signal you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sending you a secret signal over the camera. It's uh, <laughs> decided that this is the moment to plague me. I gotcha. Um, it's, and and so through that was able to locate the a family through an obituary that wow. matched up, and then a, a woman. She was an adoptive mom who was one of the searchers in our group. Happened to be traveling to the Midwest, and she said, "Hey, I can if you want. I can go try to get your death certificate." Uh, or the death certificates for your parents because it turned out that my birth mother had uh, died during my senior year of high school. Wow. And my birth father had died when I was about nine or 10 years old. Oh man. And so after what was like a 15 year search to find death at the end of it, it's was so hard, devastating. It's so hard. Cause like finding out my mom was deceased was like, I don't know. It's been 22 years and every once in a while it still like hits me, you know? And when I found my dad, he thought that it was not him. 
Oh. And he thought it was this other guy who was deceased. And long story short, he put me in contact with like a relative who was like a distant relative. And I was able to get in touch with this guy's mom and uncle. And I tracked down his son and like it took me eons, but I found him. And like his son and I, we thought we were siblings because we met a couple times and there are similarities. We both talk really fast and like same body style, body shape, and like a lot of similarities in the face and stuff like that. So I really kind of thought it was in like 16 years, I thought he was my brother. And then I got a DNA test for Christmas from my adopted sister, adoptive sister. And um, uh, lo and behold, it was the first guy. So, wow. Yeah. So, like, for two years, for 16 years, I thought both my parents were deceased and like so i i i get that like it's it's hard that's why i started my group it's not very active but it's called i found a grave and it's very specific niche group just for adoptees that you're the one who started that i didn't know that wow yeah oh i started a long time ago now i can't remember but it's it's not super active but anytime you know there's over 400 people in the group and so like you get triggered and you like need to a sounding board you go in there and write what happened and people are like yes i hear you i understand you because it's like okay adoption is like a whole kind of disenfranchised grief but finding deceased birth parent is like another level because you have to like for me i called it having to find a place of acceptance i'm gonna start crying uh because you have to accept all the stuff you can't have right the questions answered that only they can answer you know um getting a hug from your mom it's it sucks so anyway uh, yeah so i completely get it yeah it's see i said it still gets me occasionally um but it's just the reality of it. You know? It's the reality of being an adoptee and being separated from everything. And then when you find, you never know what you're going to find, you know? And, uh, yeah. So, when you found, you found, so you searched for 15 years. Off and on. It wasn't, it wasn't a full court press the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's how my searching was it was sporadic I didn't have to look for that long but it was very sporadic I would just get in these modes and hunt but, yeah this was really pre-internet certainly yeah. nobody was doing DNA tests and <clears throat> what what happened was once um, Faye who was the name of the searcher the adoptive mom who did searches for people she came back with my birth mother's death certificate and I, I was able to, to contact um, a biological aunt who was my, my mother's sister. Wow. And that's, that's a whole, that's a big long bunny trail. I don't want to go too far down, but it's fine. Um, it's basically getting that death certificate then allowed me to go to court here in Colorado to get my original birth certificate and records. Wow. That's awesome. 
And so that, I mean, the law changed here. Our, our group, our advocates here were able to incrementally change the law over a period of like 15 years. Yeah. From to 1999 to 2013, 2014, 2015. And, but this was like in 1995, 96, when I was able to go to court and get a court order for my records. And when I went in with that court order to the state registrar's office, the woman behind the desk was incensed. She, she thought it was fraudulent. You know, she was saying, how did you get this? Nobody ever get this. You're like the third person in the history of the state who has ever gotten these records. How did you do this? I'm calling the court. There's no seal on this. I like tur- I turned the paper over and said, no, here's the seal. It's for real. Feel free to call the court. <laughs> but in my brain, I'm going, this woman thinks these are her records. You know, she, 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 she's been trained that she is the gatekeeper for these yeah. secrets. <laughs> yeah. And uh, between that experience and finding death at the end of the search, I really just said no one should have to search for 15 years to find dead people. Yeah. I found, I, I also found some half siblings and aunts and cousins who were able to fill in a lot of the gaps. You know, the first visit, they had every moment planned, which I appreciate, but it was overwhelming. They like, oh yeah, we got off the airplane and went home to watch movie Christmas movies of them with our mother. That's just hard to jump right into. Which that alone put me under the table, and and that that was and the next day was going to the cemetery and going to the house that I would have lived in and going to the school I would have gone to and going. To, oh my God, driving past every the lake time. <laughs> Every time I talk to an adoptee who is like about to go through reunion, my, my, I'm like, okay, I know this is unsolicited advice, but it's coming anyway, because this is a voice of experience. Please give yourself time and space. Don't go if it's like in another state or something, don't stay at their house. Get a hotel because you need to like decompress and give yourself time to freaking breathe because it's a lot emotionally it's so overwhelming and like you don't know how it's gonna go you know like don't plan to stay with somebody you know and 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 self-care is like so important because like i dove right in (laughs) and like i spoke to my grandmother for the first time on monday i met them on wednesday and they lived like only 20 miles away from me. So wow. like, where I grew up. Yeah. That's why my brother was at my school. Uh, but it was like constant. Like I was working full time. I was babysitting my niece one day a week. And the other day was like birth family time. So like I had no time for myself. And uh, so yeah. Self-care. Give yourself time and space to process. Because you're going to need it. You know, if you're going to go through union is what I say. And it, that's hard. I mean, it's amazing they were that excited to, like, bring you into the fold. But I'm sure that was a lot. And it was, you know, it was it helped answer some questions for them. I think it was a shock for sure. Um, my my aunt was kind of the, the our intermediary because I, I found my aunt first. And she sort of had to screen me to be sure she didn't think I was okay. Her first two questions to me were, one, are you an alcoholic? Huh. Because that ran in their family. Huh. And two, are you looking for money? Those were her first two questions. 
uh, and she also said, I know who you are. So she knew and, about you? Uh, she thought she knew about me, but there was another sister who gave up a baby in Denver, and she thought I was that baby. Oh, wow. So you have so a cousin we, out there somewhere. Did you find them? Uh, no, but I've I've been to Lutheran Family Services and put all her in. She's since passed away as well, but oh. I just said, I, I talked to the social worker who handled that relinquishment. She was yeah. still at Lutheran Family Services. Wow. And she just said, you know, I'll, I, I took a cop, made a bunch of copies and put them in the file. And I said, if they ever reach out, give this, this is with her permission. Her first name is Gloria. You know, this is with her permission. Give this information to them. Yeah. And she just said, oh, I remember. Yeah, we, I, she was here and, you know, we, we counseled through the relinquishment and I would call her from time to time and see how she was doing. And yeah, um, it was surreal yeah. to uh, to do that i was relinquished through the state rather than uh, a religious agency and adopted through the state my dad used to say you cost us ten dollars and you've been worth every penny ew <laughs> ha 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 i was legal fees i was 364 dollars but it was just legal fees yeah I'm glad that nobody made a profit off of me other than the attorney. And it wasn't that much. Yeah. So, cause like when I see these fees that adoption agencies charge, it's just like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, it's like literally trafficking. It's, it's, it's a business. It is no, there's no question. It's a business. Did you see the article Mira posted? I, I tagged you because I was like, I'm going to talk to Rich and maybe we'll talk about this about yeah, this actually, I, I i just shared it on my facebook page as well yeah what do you think about that um <clears throat> i uh one kudos to uh i i dealt actually with the, the uh congressman back when he was a state representative okay and he uh, supported our bills because, and he said this publicly, so I'm not telling tales out of school here, but he himself um, grew up, came through a foster care situation. Okay. And so he gets it. He understands the issue. And he helped turn a lot of Republicans to support our bills as they were going through. Wow. And um, so th this is still a passion for him as well. Yeah. For people that don't know what we're talking about, uh, there was an article shared by group by Mira. Um, and it's a bill introduced federal oversight over private adoption agencies. So I would like private, I would like federal oversight over all of it. But the idea was, I guess the gist I caught was to create a list of quote unquote ethical agencies. And it does mention in the article how it's a business and so agencies can be coercive because they're only successful if they have adoptions happening etc which i like the idea of that of having a list but like are people gonna use that list you know like some people seem to just want a baby no matter what they have to do to get it and you're gonna hope that people want to choose the ethical option but I don't, know. I don't even know that any adoption is actually ethical, but that's a whole other thing. Because <laughs> well, we can't agree to the contract we're entered in, you know, when we're babies. So, uh, you know, I think this is, 
as I've come through some of the emotion and my own anger and grief and angst about all this, there I think there's certain facts that we have to look at. Um, infant adoption has dropped dramatically in the U.S. and also in Australia. And the vast majority of adoptions now that happen are kinship adoptions, foster care adoptions. Um, the last statistic I saw was something like only maybe 8% are actually infant adoptions in the U.S. And, and so what was the world back when one in four white girls, you know, were giving up their babies. For forced to. Um, yeah. Um, that world has changed. Yeah. And, and the reality is we're, we are in a, a time of transition a, again, but the reality is that there will always be people who have sex yes. in and out of marriage, yep. regardless of whether or not they're ready to raise a child. And there, and there are in our group, we've had a number of people who've, who've done a search and their mother has said, I don't want to talk to you. That's in my past. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you your story for an hour, but please don't call me. Please don't reach out to me. Um, in Colorado, that intermediary program, good statistics because in over 5,000 searches, um, they found consent of in some form in between 75 and 80 percent of the cases huh so it's reasonable to say that you know maybe three-fourths four-fifths of mothers are open to contact but then there's there's a group that really don't want contact i have theories about that well yeah there are there's all kinds of reasons and theories and a lot of them are rooted in trauma and not wanting to reopen the door or a spouse shame. who is in control and shame and yep. I, I, I get all that. And there are people who change their minds too. Yeah. But all that to say that um, adoption one is not going away. <laughs> no. Nope. And, and I think it can be done ethically. You do. Um, yeah. We, we have a younger mom in our group now who she's kind of educating some of the older moms and saying, you know, I totally get your story and I'm so sorry you went through that. She said, yeah. but I, uh, my relinquishment was informed consent. I had sex. I knew I could not raise the child. It was an open adoption. I got to pick the family. It was heartbreaking. Um, and she's in her, her daughter is grown now, but, she said it was heartbreaking, but she said, I have always maintained it was the right decision. I still maintain it was the right decision. Nobody coerced me. And that's her, that's her story, you know? Yeah. And I have to honor that. And, yeah. and I think there are a lot of younger mothers who've had less traumatic experiences. That doesn't mean that it was great for her child to lose yeah. its mother. Yeah. But from like, her angle, yeah. I've seen the, you know, to me, I believe, like, with the baby scoop, I saw, as I was coming of age, growing up, becoming an adult, I feel like I witnessed the destigmatization of single motherhood. Yeah. And I can remember in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, seeing, like, 
maternity prom dresses and just like in my mind i'm like crap i was born in the wrong decade like <laughs> you know what i mean like when my yeah. mother was pregnant in high school she had to hide it because she could have been expelled yeah you know? and now it's like no big thing if a girl's pregnant and happens to be finishing school and oh, some of them are trying to get on tv they're trying to get pregnant so they can get on tv yeah oh uh, that just yeah i don't know a whole nother <laughs> that's a whole other thing and so all, the, all that to say that it's 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 a moving target um uh, there's a, there's a commission that i serve on here in colorado and there's a judge who's been on that commission who deals with child welfare cases all the time yeah and he's very sympathetic to our cause and very supportive of access to records and people connecting with birth family yeah. And he also says, if anybody has any question that there are some people who truly do not want their children, cannot parent their children or should not parent their children, just come sit in my courtroom for one day and listen to what goes on. I know it happens. I know. And, that's, and I think that thankfully it's it's a minimum of, of cases compared to the general population. Yeah. But, but it's still... Then, yeah. it's, so important that it's acknowledged that for those kids that's still a trauma because even kids that are abused by their parents they're their parents they still love them and being separated from the only people they've ever known yeah that's that's traumatic you know and And that has to be a social worker but i know some and and they all attest to that they just really yeah many would rather stay in an abusive situation because it's their parents yes I, I firmly believe that with all foster care parents and adoptive parents should be required to go through like trauma informed parenting classes. Yeah. Understand like trauma responses and how behavior is communication in children, especially younger ones, and not fault these kids for having trauma responses because it's real, you know? And, uh, yeah. yeah and, I think here in Colorado, there's some many states don't have the kind of resources that that we do here in Colorado because uh, there's some excellent trainings that yeah. are available for adoptive parents and especially parents who are raising kids with complex trauma. Yeah, I feel I, like I, it should be mandatory, though, not oh, like, oh, I'm going to take a class because I want to be a good parent. No, you have to like you have to understand, like as part of the process to get approved. That yeah. This is what you're going to be getting into. Because I had somebody literally say in my group the one day, oh, God, what was it now? It was awful, though. But they were basically blaming the child for their trauma or something. And I was like, um, and they yeah, were like, I wish I had never adopted. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Like, I hope they never see you say that. I hope you never say it to them. Like, yeah. ah, I just, oh, but. So anyway, how how did you get involved in advocacy and what what uh, what do you do? Like how how do you get involved in it? And well, it a lot of it started in uh, the mid nineties. The NCSL um, was pushing for a national initiative that would seal all adoption records for 99 years what's what's that acronym national conference of state legislatures oh okay why would they do that to us 
<laughs> yeah. And so we found out about it and there was a, a hearing. Um, it wasn't a bill yet, but there was a hearing going on. And a few of us went down to testify at that hearing uh, against this, this very idea. And that was where we met some people who had, and of course, everybody on the steering committee were like legislators, adoption agencies, lawyers, None, no, nobody on the committee was someone who actually was a voice representing the population this was going to affect. Uh -huh. And so uh, we, we testified and there met some people um, who basically said, you know what, based on hearing what you're saying, we really, we shouldn't do this. So we helped stop that in Colorado. And then right around that time, an adoptee showed up at our meetings who said, I'm running for state legislature. And if I get elected, I'm going to help uh, get access to our birth certificates and our records. Awesome. And that, that was Fran Coleman. And so she was elected and uh, she helped carry some bills. Uh, there was, and also some of this was just driven by what was happening. Uh, Senator Dottie Wam at the time, Senate Judiciary Chair, she was carrying a bill to recodify the entire Children's Code of Colorado, which is a massive undertaking. And she was a psychologist and wanting to fix some of the problems and the loopholes in foster care laws. And they knew there were abuses going on and people who would just get kids for the money because you get another $2,500 a month or whatever it is per child. And so yeah. she was wanting to recodify the Children's Code. And we went down and testified on that bill. And she said, you know, if you will hold off on seeking an amendment to this big bill, because this is going to be hard enough, if you will hold off, then I will sponsor your bill next year. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay. So that's how it got started uh, with, with my involvement yeah. anyway. And uh, from that time, there was there's a bill that, again, we were starting with full unrestricted access. It got whittled back to a prospective bill with mutual consent retrospectively or if the birth parent is deceased. We didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, but we said, hey, if nothing else, we can stop the madness for the next generation and keep working on it. Yeah. Uh, I got a lot of criticism for that. Uh Another bill came along and it actually sort of got hijacked and sabotaged. One of our members did a court hearing because he was born uh, prior to 1965 and he was trying to get his records. And so he appealed it and the Colorado Court of Appeals opened up those files. Not So now we had prospective from 1990 forward. And then retrospective from 65 back through 51. So we had kind of a sandwich state. Is that how uh, those gaps happen? Yeah. And it's based, it's based on the history of legislation in each state. Huh. That, you know, they were ac accessible at certain times and then sealed at certain times. And then the law changed again. And there was a, a loophole that made this Makes work. Makes no sense. It's so, so, it's so frustrating no, for those people that can't get it. You know, like it's so oh, yeah. unfair. See, like, okay, I'm a Pennsylvania adoptee, and we had that mutual, uh, or what is it, court-appointed intermediary. That's what my option was at the time, because yeah. my search was done in 2001, 
And I had a friend who was a first mom that had started a local group in the Pittsburgh area. And she knew exactly what you had to do. She was all about reuniting adoptees and parents. And so she's like, all right, you're going to write to Orphan's Court. You're going to ask for this lady to be appointed as your intermediary. You know, she's favorable to adoptees and gets our plight. And so I did that. She was appointed to me. And then she tells me she was such a lovely lady. And uh, her name was uh, Kathy Leahy. Kathy? Yeah. And um, she said, you know, it's crazy. She described it to me. She's like, they give me, you know, they, they have this little glass, security glass room with a little table. And my file sitting in there and all she's allowed to take in is a pencil and a yellow legal pad. I'm like, what's in there? Nuclear codes? Like, (laughs) I mean, it's ridiculous. (laughs) And so she was then able to cut my grandparents were still living in the same house, you know? So it was like, okay, I'm appointed, but I have to wait till I get my appointment to see your records. And it was like a couple months process. Then now as of 2017 um what they've done in pennsylvania so you have other options now you can get an uncertified copy of your birth certificate so you fill out a form you send in 20 bucks and they pull your birth certificate and they type up the info on a sheet of paper and send it to you so you still can't get your original i won't send for that one because i want my actual birth certificate i won't get it out of principle i just won't like I can do that myself because I know everything now. Yeah. Um, so like at least that's an option for people now. They can get their their names at least, which is good. But I don't feel like it's good enough, you know. Yeah, I, and the the cool thing is, I mean, we we spend a lot of time arguing about whether something is a perfect bill, and we all have the same goal. You know, yeah. uh, there's some people who've, who've accused me of being this terrible compromiser because we did it in incremental steps. And I'm like, well, if you can do it in one fell swoop, please do it. Yeah, right. But you guys, it's like pushing and full of politics. And, and at the same time, um, people are dying every year. And, it, and there, you'd never know the power structure in any state and who has a personal issue about something. We, we had an adoptive dad who opposed our bills and he would show up. He was from Leadville up in the mountains and he would show up dressed in black with his cowboy hat, wearing his bill killing outfit. That's what he called it. I'm wearing my bill killing outfit today. What was his problem? We're not sure. Um, Fragility? Well, I, I, I couldn't speculate, you know, there, <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't speculate. Maybe it was how he got his child. Maybe he was living in the world of I'm the only real parent. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't know. But I he am. stood up on the house floor and he said, the only medical history my son needs is mine. Oh, my God. That's such bullshit. <laughs> and, and that actually that really helped turn the house in our favor because they're going, what? Yeah, that doesn't work. Listen to what you're saying. Listen to what you're saying. And I remember the the year in, in 2014 when the full bill passed pretty much unanimously in both the house and the Senate, uh-huh. I was standing outside in the house gallery 
And when it came time for the vote, he stormed out the door and glared at me. And, you know, if he could have hit me, he probably would have. He was so upset. And and the vote went down and he didn't vote. He he left the floor for the vote. Huh. Kind of in, in protest. But there's we have really solid arguments now, but there's always some personal issue that crops up. There's always some misunderstanding. Um one of the things that I talk about, we've really kind of moved. I absolutely believe that it's a human right to know where you came from. Yes. You know, you, we got to know that. If everybody else can, can, we should be able to know. To the extent that you can, you know, yeah. if the records are lost or that sort of thing, that there are limits to that. But in principle, absolutely. Yeah. But but I've actually kind of moved away from pounding the table on adoptee rights, adoptee rights, adoptee rights, because what happens is somebody hears that and they say, wait, my duty as a legislator is to represent all of my constituents. So what about birth parent rights? And then all of a sudden you've positioned the issue as an adversarial thing and you're off to the races toward a compromise. And you know, there are, there are, I applaud the birth mothers who stand up and testify. And I applaud the research that's been done saying nobody's ever produced a document promising birth mothers anonymity from their own offspring. And that's a hundred percent true. Right. Yep. Uh, once it gets this emotional though, a lot of legislators say, don't confuse me with the facts. I have to protect birth mothers. Don't confuse me with the facts. This is going to cause more abortions. Don't confuse me with the facts. These, you know, these promises were made. And what I've learned to say is some women were promised anonymity. They uh -huh. were The promise was made in excess of the law and what it really said. And so I, I talked to a group of agency people in a state where a bill was working on it. And they were saying, well, we we made these promises. Our lawyers made these promises to these women. And I said, well, if your lawyer did that based on the status of the law there, that was probably malpractice. Yeah. But yeah. the point remains that these some women do have that expectation. And so this is something we have to learn to work with and get around. Um, a bill in California right now, bills that have happened in Florida. It's a hot topic in Wisconsin right now. And so I think we've really refined our talking points pretty well. Yeah. But the challenge is navigating the unseen factors or the additional factors. California has a, and Florida both have uh, privacy provisions in their state constitution. Not all states have that. There's only about 10 that have that. And so each state, you have to work strategically. And yeah. Certain compromises you absolutely cannot and should not make because you're you're just digging the hole deeper and making it worse. Okay, are, I, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say I, you do you have I can't remember you have an organization that you or a website or something that helps to educate people on how to get involved yeah. in this kind of advocacy. A lot of great resources. Uh, Coalition for Truth and Transparency in Adoption. Okay. And it's um, adoptiontruthandtransparency.org. Okay. I'll put the link in the show notes to make sure people can find it. And then I have like a, not quite a hypothetical question, but 
just because I don't know how this works in and it's bad to say this because I had an advocacy class and my professor would probably be like, what do you mean you don't know? But <laughs> it's across state lines. And that's what I'm curious about. So we had a legislature in, you know, I'm a Pennsylvania adoptee, but I live in West Virginia now. And we had a West Virginia legislator propose a bill giving access to birth certificates for adoptees after they hit the age of 21. Okay. Which I was like, I'll be glad to support West Virginia adoptees. You know, as far as I'm concerned, they're all, all adoptees are my brethren. You know, we're all the same sinking ship. And uh, so, you know, these laws and things like that, they're, they're paddles. Like, let's keep us going. And so if somebody like that, you know, in this state proposes a bill like that, introduces a bill, would having adoptees from other states or even like there's one in Michigan that they're they're there's somebody that posts in my group regularly saying if you're a Michigan adoptee would adoptees from other states writing in to these like say if you wrote a letter to this West Virginia legislature supporting this bill stating why it's good all these kind of things do they even care do they want to hear or will they dismiss it like what do you think happens there um you know that could vary state by state generally speaking legislators are moved by their constituents right um there there are groups that position themselves as national organizations that weigh in okay and 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 I've called people outside my state and uh, talked to them and written letters in support, and and I think those are or or letters in opposition, and right. I think those things can be helpful, but generally speaking, if you're not from that state, they say thank you for your input. <laughs> Take a long walk. <laughs> and and you know this is Wisconsin, and we're going to do what we think is best for Wisconsin. Okay. Um, if you can provide good factual data that speaks specifically to their law, yeah, um, that's helpful to a sponsor for sure. Okay. Uh, mass emails, in my experience, um, and and we're, we've seen this in in California around the bill there AB thirteen oh two. It's um, it has actually backfired so far in terms of the emotional impact. I see. And and generating support. Uh, some, some quiet conversations are educating legislators there, but and, and there may be a moment to do an email blast saying, "Hey, there's a lot of people that care about this." Right. But to rally the troops every time some bill rolls out that you don't like and say this bill has to die, <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of a knee jerk thing, and it okay. does not portray us as mature. It doesn't portray us as rational. Uh, in fact, it can, and some of the some of the things that I've seen people write turn out to be evidence for why we cannot manage this ourselves. Some of the vitriolic, nasty things that people have said, um, self-absorbed things that people have said, yeah. rather than talking about good policy, talking about history, talking about um, personal it, stories. Yeah, I mean, a, a a helpful personal story is good. Yeah, but you know, some of the language and some of the rhetoric that goes on 
can actually work against us. And, and then you're having to not only defend the issue, but you're having to say, well, and, and actually most adoptees are not this mean and vicious. And <laughs> um, our, our, we have to temper our passion. I'm not saying to ignore it. I'm not saying not to feel it deeply. Yeah. But you have to communicate like an adult in this right. world. This is, state legislatures are not chat rooms on social media. Vent in your support group. Yeah. Vent, vent in your closed adoptee land. Filmmakers don't want to hear it. Yeah, but legislators, you know, they see six hundred to a thousand bills a year. Yeah, and no matter, and there's always something bigger going on. There's the budget. There's a hurricane in Florida. There's an earthquake or a fire in California. There's something else happening. It's always more important. That is, and and the number of voters that that they perceive they have who are adoptees compared to almost any other issue. We're yeah. a very tiny plank in their platform. Yeah. And so this is where approaching it with carefully crafted talking points and respect and some, some well-crafted, well-trained spokespeople who to do this effectively, you really kind of have to be, more than 50% through a lot of your crap as, as an adoptee or a birth parent or an adoptive parent, you really have to have thick skin. Um, when I was at the Capitol in 2014, there was a state Senator who was really opposing our bill. And he grew up with a woman from our group who was an adoptee and she was talking to him. Yeah. And what he said to me, to my face under the Capitol rotunda was, well, you know, you seem like you've had a good life. And if I were you, I would just be glad I wasn't aborted. Oh, for God's sake. Direct quote. Hey, another, you should be grateful, you know. Yeah. Another very powerful person in Colorado in a meeting about a bill uh, at that time, this was years ago, but another very powerful person said, well, my view is that the law should be tilted in favor of adoptive parents because after all, they are the buyers. Oh, my God. God, he Direct actually quote. said that. Direct quote. Oh. And so, and these are the things oh. that if you're going to wade into this arena, <laughs> you need to be ready to handle it with grace and with tact and not come over the table and punch somebody. <laughs> and... <laughs> I just like... As soon as you said that, my brain went right to they don't give a shit about us. We are just the product. Like, right. That, and, that's, and, that's it. Like, they don't give a shit about us. Well, oh. and, and but look at it legitimately. OK, say you're a legislator who sits in committees all day long hearing people talk about their problems and, and yeah. what's wrong with the law and how they're oppressed. OK, yeah, yeah. That's got to be exhausting in and of itself. Sure. But they kind of ask for it. <laughs> right no and and in in our world we get that you know we get what we go through um but what i finally realized was we went in and we would testify we would line up 20 people to testify and everybody would cry and everybody would hope that the legislators would get how it feels to be an adoptee who doesn't know where you came from nobody gets it unless they're there 
Yeah. And, and once I realized, wait a minute, because because committee chairs would start saying, you know what, could you assign this bill to a different committee? Because I know what's coming and I don't want to sit through that. Ugh. And and once I, I realized, OK, some people are never going to get it. And it's kind of unfair to expect them to get it on an emotional level. Right. And particularly if your bill is scheduled right after the people who've all come in in their wheelchairs on oxygen. And then you're trying and you're there in your your nice suit and your shoes and your master's degree trying to explain how oppressed you are. Right. It, it doesn't play well. Right. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Now, I'm sure that's hard, but you seem like you're doing okay to me compared to this last group of people that was in here. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's this the whole is, scope of what's going on in their day-to-day yeah. lives as legislatures. We're just and a blip so, on the radar. Yeah. And and what we what we learned is it's so much more effective to limit the number of people who testify. Uh-huh. Um to have a, a birth parent who's very articulate, uh, a therapist, an open adoption agency executive director who supports this cause uh one maybe two adoptees uh, an adoptive parent because we keep the word coalition keeps floating around you know we're, let's form a coalition yeah you need like the whole i don't like triad i like web or constellation because so many more are involved in it than Absolutely. just the three because there's extended and- family members on both sides there's the agencies there's lawyers there's yeah social workers like it's 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 a lot bigger than just a triad and if you and if you can round up people from all these different truly different perspectives having people who have started 30 different facebook groups that are half of them are all the same people right Uh. (laughs) sign on as the coalition legislators see through that and they laugh really yeah they're like okay so these websites all look the same um, and these people are all using the exact same talking points and the graphics look the same and they're pretending they're 30 different organizations. That does not help us. But if you have people who legitimately represent, you can get statements from like on the CTTA website, we've got the statements from the National Association of Social Workers, a statement from um, adoptive parent groups, uh, the adoption attorneys signed on to this back when That's the New great. York bill was going through. That's a coalition. These are legitimate, legally established organizations. Yeah, yeah. Who are all saying the same thing from a different angle. And then all of a sudden, what I said at the the workshop in, and I know we're probably running over time, but um, at the workshop in, in uh, Kentucky. Yeah. Is advocacy is sales. Lobbying is sales. And you need to identify the objection and the pain point of the person who you're speaking to rather than just trying to ram the same talking points down everybody's throat all the time. Yeah, it takes a finesse, like nuance. And you have have a toolkit of things you can use in the conversation. Yeah. But you need to know whether you're talking to a Democrat or a Republican. (laughs) You need to know whether you're talking to a moderate or an extremist. You need to know if they have any personal connection to the issue and what that connection is. If they'll tell you, they don't always tell you. Yeah. You need to know who's in power in each house. 
Um, you need to know if the speaker hates your bill sponsor or not. Right. You need, <laughs> over some. There's a lot to think about. Completely unrelated issue. You need to know if the bill that you've put forth is going to generate a fiscal note that's going to kill the bill apart from the merits of the bill. Um, and then that's just the beginning. You know, right. you, you need to know if somebody has secretly hired a lobbyist to undermine what you're doing. The lobbyist is pretending to be your friend and sitting in on your meetings to find out what you're doing. So what do you think is or would be the easiest way for adoptees to get involved and advocate for legislative type change in their states? Best thing you can do, best thing you can do is get to know who your state senator and state representative are, show up at their town hall meetings, walk for them when they're running for election and distribute flyers contribute money small amounts of money to their campaign and it's i've had adoptees say i shouldn't have to do all that this is my right to my information they should just recognize my inherent right to know where i came from well yes they should but that's not how the game is played <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's true. not how it works and in in grown-up land we really have three choices we can raise millions of dollars to do a ballot initiative if our state lets that happen. We can do a court case to try to open up the records. And, and so far, the case law is not in our favor that this is an absolute right. What the case law has said is it's a procedural right. Huh. Okay. And what that means is it's not a question of whether, but how we can get these records. And when you start talking that way, then all of a sudden it diffuses things. It's like, wow, the process right now is really oppressive. I could get it. I could go to court. I could buy, I could hire a lawyer. I could make these arguments. I can get letters from my doctor. I can round up death certificates from my birth parents. And the court might rule in my favor. And when you start to present it that way, one, you come across as somebody who's rational. Huh, yeah. And two, you're a face. You're not an email. Right. You're a face. They know you. They know your story. They know that you're a responsible member of society and you're a good taxpaying citizen. And those are the things that make the biggest impact. And your legislator, understand that your legislator, even if they're sympathetic to the cause, they may or may not be the best bill sponsor for this bill. Right. But if they're in your court, they know they know who is the best bill sponsor and they can help you connect with that person. And so you don't need a thousand emails coming into somebody's email box. Generally speaking, that just pisses people off because it wastes their time. You need a handful of diverse voices who are mature and sane. And tactic. Who, and who, yeah. And, and tactful yes. who can build respect. And once, once people get behind you in Colorado, this past year, something that people thought was impossible happened. And that is a bill. It's a prospective bill, but a bill that would allow donor conceived people. It basically requires in Colorado, if you are going to sell your egg or sperm, I don't use the word donate, but if you're going to sell your egg or sperm, you agree to that child that you create or children you create knowing who you are when they turn 18. Hmm. 
Good. It's only right. And part of what happened there was we we went in to help. The the bill was actually in a lot of trouble, even though it was sponsored by the Senate president, because there was a lot of opposition. They were grinding them down on the content of the bill. It's not a perfect bill. But what happened was because we had relationships with a lot of legislators when we went in to testify in committee, um, they had three groups of people testifying as panels. And um, our lobbyist Shane and I testified with um, the president of the donor conceived council to kind of back cleanup. And we already knew where the votes were because we knew who the people were. Uh, one of the guys on the committee had sponsored bills for us. He's a rancher. His good buddy was a farmer. You think they don't understand the importance of understanding the genetics? Uh, yeah. You know, they get it. It's yeah. like, would, would you buy a horse that you didn't know where they came from? No. <laughs> I have so many comments rolling around now. <laughs> I know. But but those are the things, those are the kinds of things that you that you work with. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really good and, information. And the uh, other committee, and, and these were both Republicans, you know, who yeah. they were in the minority on the committee. But all these people had come in and doctors had testified and people who ran fertility clinics had testified and thought that they'd really swayed the committee because they said, oh, this is going to put us out of business. We can't do this. This is terrible. And we we got up and just said, kind of a few things yeah um, and because we knew them and they knew us and we had done our homework and they had already dealt with the adoption issue it got out of committee unanimously huh. and out in the out in the lobby these other people these lawyers and high-powered doctors were just looking at me going who the hell are you <laughs> what do you do for a living are you a lawyer no <laughs> you I could spent, be i spent about eight years in a legal environment and ah. so it was it was a legal education without having to go to law school. So I don't claim to be a lawyer. I was a claims adjuster for eight years and I did battle with lawyers who do, tried to get me fired. Basically, you learned because, a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> um, I don't pretend to uh, exceed my education or my limits, but I've, I've been coached by some excellent lawyers. Yeah. Uh, I'm in sales right now. I work in I work in the wireless industry. Oh, and so um, never know it. <laughs> well, that gives me the flexibility like, to do a I lot of things. Wondering, I'm like, has he, has he been a lobbyist? Has he been a legislator? Is he a lawyer? Like, yeah, I have a master's degree in adult learning and human resource studies. I have 24 hours of additional graduate work in psychology and counseling, which I didn't finish that degree because it was. I was gearing toward a PhD and then the economy crashed and the program I was going to pursue went away. So I'm basically an overeducated, very middle-class guy who. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you so much for like all this experience that you've gained and being willing to share it with the adoptee community, because the more of us that understand how this works, the more of us can step up and start doing things in our own States and I still think there should be federal oversight for all adoption, but I, the fact that they can't even tell us how many kids are adopted every year, like that hurts my head. Like oh, what? And one quick response to that. Yeah. Um, courts have established clearly that this is a state issue. 
Yeah, I know. And that's the hard thing. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this bill goes anywhere, if this federal bill goes anywhere, yeah. because that might be able to crack open a door on some other issues. Um, some great. people have looked at it, you know, international adoptee issues are federal because there are federal laws about that. Yeah. But because people have appealed state rulings and federal courts have just simply refused to hear them. They're just, they just bounce it back. They go, we're not going to comment on this. It's a, it's a state issue, not a federal issue. Yeah. I still and think so that they should a, be able to say how many kids are adopted every year at, oh, at minimum. There has to be you, some kind of yeah. statistic for the public to be able to see, you know. The Department of Human Services collects that data to the extent that they can. Um, I know, but it's not accurate. That's what bothers me. Like, yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Any personal reporting and that's the hard thing, you know. Yeah. OK, well, I'm going to stop this recording. Um, Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure, and I look forward to chapter two whenever we can get there. Yes, yes, we have to talk about the musical. So um, I, I do appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge. Uh, it's it's a big deal. I really try to have a wide variety of people on here, like adoptees, first parents, but also people that have are, are and are doing the work you know, that's important, you know, like Lisa, um, Elaine with her documentary she's working on and, you know, it's, it's just all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really important to showcase what people are doing to say, Hey, you know, you can do this. <laughs> Anybody can, can learn it. And, um, and from every angle, that's how we change our culture. Yeah. You know, Getting we involved. use advocacy, we use art, we use writing, we use, um, all those things and and it's so exciting to to see the momentum that is building and continues to build in this whole movement so thank Absolutely. you for being with that yes all right yes